the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He was recognized as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Horses raised, heads bowed down. Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife, Beth. Hello, everybody. Okay, so for those of you who haven't heard the show before, the show is in two parts, not equal parts. But the first part of the show, we talk about estate planning and elder law. And the idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. Now, if, if you want to hear more about estate planning and elder law, if you live in Manhattan or Staten Island or if you live anywhere in the city, you're more than welcome to join us for our seminars in June. On June 25th, we're in Midtown Manhattan at the 3 West Club, 3 West 51st Street. We're there at 11 o'clock and 3 p.m. on June 25th. On Thursday, June 27th, we're in Staten Island, 11, 3, and 7. We're at Bocelli's Restaurant at 1250 Highland Boulevard, which is right next door to our office. And I mean, you can ask whatever questions you want at the seminar. We pretty well, I think we answer every single question that comes up. So if you have any questions, feel free. Now you might say, well, I don't live in Manhattan. I don't live in Staten Island. Well, we're going to be in Brooklyn the end of July and probably in Queens in September after Labor Day. So if just wait till we come to you or if you want to come to Manhattan or Staten Island on June 25th, 27th, give us a call at 718 718- 238-6500. 718-238-6500. Admission is free, and we, we want to know how many people are there so we know how to set up the room and you know how many chairs we need and so forth and so on. But when we start talking about estate planning, if you have any estate planning questions, you can email us at askmyconnors at gmail.com, askmyconnors at gmail.com. Beth, what email questions do we have floating around right now? We have one from George. My parents are giving me power of attorney. Do I need an agreement for each, or can one agreement have both names on it? Well, basically, if you need, if you use the New York State statutory form power of attorney, you need power of attorney to be signed one separate agreement, let's say, to be signed by each parent. Because, you know, here's the thing. A power of attorney can be revoked. So let's say mother, father, mother may want child to continue to act as power of attorney. Mother may have a different set of ideas, want to choose another child, and they're entitled to do that. So we have separate power of attorney documents where each parent, let's say in this case, is is in charge of their own destiny. And of course, what is a power of attorney? A power of attorney is, is a written document notarized. In New York, it has to be witnessed by two people if you're going to give full authority to make gifts. And a power of attorney is very important. Somebody has a stroke. 
or another disabling illness, it's extremely important to have a power of attorney because in that way you can manage their assets. And sometimes some people should have a power of attorney. They don't think they do. Because let's say we got a husband and wife and they got everything joint. And, uh, you know, they say, well, why do we need a power of attorney? Is it automatic that a husband and wife can sign the other's name? We're married 40 years. No, it doesn't quite work that way. There's no automatic right in New York for a husband and wife to be able to sign each other's name. And you might say, well, I can go to the bank and take the money out. And yes, if it's a joint account, you can go to the bank, you can take the money out. But let's say husband has an IRA. He's got a million dollars in his IRA, $100,000 in his IRA. Wife wants the access to the husband's IRA to pay some bills because maybe he's in a nursing home and we need to pay some bills. Can't do it if you don't have the husband's signature if he's not mentally competent. And that's where the power of attorney comes into play. If power of attorney, if the husband specifically allows his wife to access his IRA to pay some bills or to do whatever, you know, she can do that. Sometimes there's some tax reasons to take withdrawals out of an IRA to pay certain bills. You know, let's say you have a house and husband's in a nursing home. Wife wants to put the house in her name because maybe she wants to sell it. Well, we need a power of attorney. There's no automatic right. You know, a deed to the house, we need both signatures to transfer that property. And the power of attorney I'm talking about, by the way, it's it's not the standard form you get off the internet. It's not the standard form you may get from a bank. If we're going to do everything that we need a power of attorney for in estate planning, it, it has to have a lot of specifics in there. It has to have the authority to make transfers of assets, let's say, from husband and wife to wife or to the children. It has to, let's say, allow the husband or wife, or depending on who's on it, to set up a trust, revocable or irrevocable, including a pooled income trust. The standard form doesn't allow that. The standard form allows you to pay bills to access accounts, but it doesn't allow you to make gifts. It doesn't allow, let's say, to set up a trust, which in some case we need in order to apply for home care Medicaid or nursing home Medicaid. And sometimes a couple has substantial assets. We may need a power of attorney to do some estate planning. You know, some people say, well, there's no estate tax anymore. Didn't Trump get rid of it? Isn't it $11,400,000? That's true, but New York State imposes an estate tax of $5,700,000. And some people who own real estate have a lot more than that. And so let's say husband has a stroke, and, and if everything's set, he dies, he leaves everything to his wife. His wife leaves, let's say, $6 million in assets in New York right now. Children are paying almost $400,000 in taxes. That's a sin. But if we have a power of attorney, we could set up trusts where we get everything out tax-free on that $6 million estate. So I, I can't even tell you all the stories why you would need a power of attorney, but there are a lot of reasons to have a power of attorney. Now, I, I don't want to sugarcoat this. If you give a power of attorney to the wrong person, they can wipe you out. They can steal you blind. But at the same time, if you're married, you trust your spouse, you want to protect your spouse, I strongly recommend you think about a power of attorney. And if you got a son or daughter you implicitly trust, put them on the power of attorney. And, and what happens if you don't have a power of attorney and something happens, somebody has a stroke? And the reason I use a stroke is that hits like the sudden bolt of lightning. You know, most diseases give us warning signals. A stroke doesn't. It hits like the sudden bolt of lightning and throws the family into disarray. So that's... What we want to avoid, protect against, and that's where the power of attorney comes into play. If you don't have a power of attorney, you have to go to court. And if you go to court, believe me, it gets expensive. You're paying for your own lawyer. You're paying for a court evaluator. You may be paying for an independent lawyer to represent the spouse. But more importantly, it, it takes time. And sometimes if you're paying $15,000 to a nursing home, three to four, six months delay, six months delay might cost you $100,000. So you don't want to be in that position. And not only that, you don't want to have a judge making every decision for you or approving every decision you make is a better way to do it. You need to act quickly sometimes. And, and second marriage situations to go through guardianship may take years if the family doesn't agree. So if you're married, 
you want to protect your spouse, you trust your spouse, I strongly recommend you think about a power of attorney. And if you got a son or daughter you implicitly trust, let's, you know, let's put them on it because you got to ask yourself, who do you trust more, your family members or do you want to go through the court system? And I hope I hope you don't want to go through the court system because that co- that's expensive and it, it causes delays. Again, that's one of the main questions and one of the things we talk about when we do our seminars. We talk about a power of attorney, how it can be used in some cases, you know, to save hundreds of thousands of dollars of assets. Literally, let's say we have a mom who's going to a nursing home. She's got a daughter who's lived in the same house with her for a few years. We put that house in a trust. We save that house from mom's nursing home bill. What if we don't have a power of attorney? Then we have to go to court and we got to hope that the judge allows us to put that house into a trust for the benefit of the daughter who lives in the house. And you don't know what's going to happen. And I mean, and you got to remember, from the judge's point of view, the judge doesn't necessarily know all the facts. Things get muddled sometimes because people don't speak clearly or the ideas are not expressed clearly enough. And then maybe the judge thinks about it. Maybe some somebody else, some child who's you know a little embittered, disappointed causes some problems. With a power of attorney, we can avoid going to court in most circumstances. It's not a perfect world, but to protect yourself, to protect your spouse, I strongly recommend you think about doing a power of attorney. And don't get me wrong, please do not give a power of attorney to a person you can't trust because you never know what's going to happen. And I know you say, well, what can I do? Well, if you want, you can schedule an appointment with us and we can talk it over and figure out what the best thing to do is. And one of the things you can do on a, a power of attorney is that you can put restrictions on it. You can say nobody can use my power of attorney unless a medical doctor, a psychiatrist, two psycho- psycho- psychologists say it can't be used until I'm not, I don't have mental capacity to pay my own bills. You can put that in it. You can you can have the power of attorney. Let's say in some cases we hold the power of attorney in our office and we only release it upon certain circumstances. So think about it. It's, it's one of the things that we should encounter, face when we're doing estate planning. Is there a relative out there? that we trust enough to do an estate plan and to do a power of attorney. doesn't have to be a relative, but I'd be very cautious in giving a power of attorney to a friend. That's why estate planning, it's not always easy. Sometimes you got to come in and talk it over. Again, if you want to talk it over with us, you're more than welcome to do it at Connors & Sullivan. We need to take a short break. We'll be back in a couple of minutes. You're listening to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife, Beth. See you back in a minute. For our Ask the Lawyer friends and listeners, you can attend any of Connors & Sullivan's free seminars on elder law, Medicaid, wills, and estate planning, and more. Yes, it's all free and all close to you. So come to Connors & Sullivan's free seminars. On Tuesday, June 25th at the 3 West Club, 3 West 51st Street in Midtown Manhattan at 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. And on Thursday, June 27th at Bocelli's Ristorante, 1250 Highland Boulevard in Grasmere, Staten Island at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 7 p.m. Can't go to any Connors & Sullivan's free seminars? Then call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500 for your own free office appointment. Make an educated decision on your estate and family legal solutions today. Just call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500. That's Connors & Sullivan, 718-238-6500 or go to connorsandsullivan.com. That's connorsandsullivan.com. Find out what you're entitled to. Come to a Connors and Sullivan free seminar. For more information, call 718-238-6500 or go to connorsandsullivan.com. Connors and Sullivan. Plan now for later. 
Do you have somewhere to sleep? Did you eat today? Are you making ends meet? For thousands of New Yorkers, the answer is no. For children and youth, adults, seniors, people struggling with addiction or mental illness, and for the isolated, Catholic Charities of Brooklyn and Queens is there. With 160 programs and more than 4,500 units of affordable housing, Catholic Charities is one of the largest multi-service charitable organizations in the nation. We help change lives and build communities. If you or someone you know needs assistance, call 718-722-6001 or visit CCB. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors. Now, each week, Kevin McCullough takes one of the questions, one of the email questions. Then he asks me the question on his radio show. And you can catch Kevin each Monday through Friday at 5 o'clock on 970 The Answer because he's got an extended hour on Wednesdays because he shares the one hour with John Katsimatidis from 5 to 6. So he's on from 4 to 5. And he's on our sister station, 570 The Mission, from Monday through Friday. So here's the question from Kevin McCullough. Every week, we promise you that uh, Mike Connors of Connors and Sullivan will stop by to answer one of your very important questions as it relates to estate care and elder law. And uh, this week's question uh, comes from Mildred. Uh, she says, Mike, I own a two family home that is in the trust. Am I required to place money collected for rent in a trust bank account? Thanks, Mildred. Mike Connors? Yeah, ordinarily, no. The way we write most of our trust, let's say all the income in the trust goes to the owner of the trust, which 90% of the time, 95% of the time is going to be the parent. So assuming Mildred is the parent and she put the house in a trust, she would have the right to collect rents on the property for her lifetime. After she's gone, the heirs then would put the rents in a trust to distribute according to her wishes. So that's a pretty uh, simple, straightforward uh, answer. And, uh, friends, you may have a similar situation, and it might be a simple answer. It might not be. But how can you better prepare than to call Connors & Sullivan, use their expert team, uh, as it is uh, regularly uh, uh, regaled by their own peers in the uh, New York legal community, and uh, find out for yourself. Uh, friendly, cooperative, great customer service. You're going to love working with Connors & Sullivan, as the McCullough family has. Here's the number. 718-238-6500. You can ask your question there. You can also check out uh, the uh, email, askmikeconnors at gmail.com. Submit a question of your own to be answered here on Kevin McCullough Radio. And then make sure to listen to Mike's weekend broadcast, uh, Saturday mornings at 8 on AM 570 The Mission and Sunday mornings at 11 on AM 970 The Answer. Mike Connors, thanks for all the help. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks again, Kevin. A few days ago was, was D-Day, and, you know, it's the 75th anniversary of D-Day, and, and we're going to focus a little bit on World War II on this show. One of our guests is going to be Stanley Goldman. He's a lawyer, college professor, law school professor. He wrote a book about his mother, who was in Ravensbrück concentration camp, which was a horrible place to be. And he has a little-known piece of history that he's talking about, left to the mercy of a rude stream. The bargain that broke Adolf Hitler and saved my mother. And basically, uh, you know, you'll hear him talk about it and how, you know, his mother, you know, survived a concentration camp. One of the privileges I, I have in, in working the job, I've seen people from all over the world. I see people that have gone through incredible stories during their lifetime. I remember I just saw her a couple of weeks ago, Margot de Hartog, and she's 99 years old, and her story was put on the Spielberg chronicles or whatever they used to call them and, and she told the story there she was a, a young girl she was on the train to Auschwitz and a German soldier came up to her and for no apparent reason started a fight with her and threw her off the train 
And of course, at the time, she was crying. She was devastated because she thought Auschwitz, because the Nazis were greater propaganda. She thought, you know, she's going to a better place. She's going to get better food, everything else. And of course, after the war, she realized that the German soldier uh, saved her life. And she reflects on it, and she has no idea what was going through his mind. Was he trying to save one person a day? You know, it's hard to explain, and that was a mystery in her life. And it's these type of stories that, you know, that fascinate me, the people that went through history and in some cases went through horrible experiences. I remember more than a few people that went through Auschwitz, and I talked about them, and you see the tattoos. It puts a, a shiver up your spine that one human being could be so evil. You know, like I, I remember Mr. Gutman or whatever, and he was talking about the time that he met Mengele, and they went down the line and decided whether you lived or died in, in a couple of minutes. So in any event, we're going to remember the, the people who went through World War II. So we're going to talk to Professor Goldman about his mother's experience and a, a strange part of history that, you know, happened. We're also going to listen to our friend Tony Lobianco, and he's going to be talking about, you know, Normandy a little bit. And Tony's a great patriot, and he's a great lover of history, and that's why he's been on our show so many times. But he's talking about his experience of just meeting a family in Normandy, because it, it is the 75th anniversary of D-Day, and those people deserve to be honored. It, it was not an easy job. You know, life was very hard back in, in World War II, you know. You know, even the people who were in the States, and they're worried about their relatives overseas, you know, everybody was in the service, give or take, in World War II, and, and you always had a son or in some cases, daughter that you had to worry about. And they went through a terrible time. We don't go through terrible times now. Yes, we, we have things that happen to us here and there, but not like, you know, World War II where millions and millions and millions of people were exterminated. I mean, it, it's just impossible to conceive. First, we're going to talk to Stan Goldman. Name of the book, Left to the Mercy of a Rude Stream, The Bargain That Broke Adolf Hitler and Saved My Mother. And that's a truly fascinating story. And then we're going to listen to our buddy, Tony Lobianco, talk a little bit about his experience in visiting Normandy. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. Hi, this is Frank Melia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. This past October, the federal government made changes to the reverse mortgage loan program. Give me a call now so our office can show you how these changes affect how much money you receive and how the annual mortgage insurance costs have decreased. My job is to help you find the best solutions for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646, or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash fmelia. Once again, call 888-943-2646, and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank, NMLS number 403503. We all know someone who's been touched by cancer. It's the second leading cause of death. And it took the life of my father, John Wayne. But even in his final days, he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer. His courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big C, as my dad called it. 
So we did something about it and founded the John Wayne Cancer Institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research. Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. That's jwcigiving.org. Time now for Connor's Corner, where Mike takes a closer look at topics like history, politics, religion, and more. Here's Mike. Welcome to the Connor's Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. One of the great things about my job is that I get to meet senior citizens all over. And over the years, I've met more than a few people who escaped the horrors of Nazi concentration camps. And right now, I'm very privileged to speak to Stan Goldman, who has a book out, Left to the Mercy of a Rude Stream, The Bargain That Broke Adolf Hitler and Saved My Mother. That's some title there, Stanley. Uh, Yes, it it is, however, uh, although the first part may be a little oblique, uh, it's it's an actual description of what the book's about. It's about um, my mother, who was in the concentration camps, including Auschwitz, uh, sort of left to the mercies of the rude stream of history. Uh, that she was being sort of, you know, shuffled and 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 moved and and subject to the waves of, and the currents of uh, of the Nazis who, you know, would move her from one place to the next because they needed workers and uh, in many ways that's how her life was saved. Uh, she just kept being prolonged, um, you know, in terms of her life so that eventually she ended up being rescued at the end of the war, uh, something that a lot of other people were not lucky enough to have had happen. So what's the basis of the story? What 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 is the deal? Well, the book actually blends um, three different things together in a sense. The central part of the story is um, my mother passed away, and um, I had she had known that obviously she'd been rescued near the end of the war, um, literally from a camp. Uh, there had been a rescue before the Allies ever arrived. Uh, there had been buses that arrived, and took her away to a neutral country after some considerable effort and being bombed by the British and all sorts of things. She made it to freedom, but uh, she never knew why. Uh, she never knew how this, any of this had come about. I never knew. When I was young, I decided to look into it for a while. I couldn't find enough information about it. I, I forgot about it for a while. She passed away, and I, I happened to be in Israel visiting a woman who was uh, with my mother during all of this, during the camps, um, during the, the, the rescue. And um, she happened to have something that I looked at, and it, it sent me on the trail to, just for my own information as to how all of this happened. And it turned out it was, I, I have to say, the most remarkable story I'd ever, I'd ever heard, figured out, heard. Um, and I, I, believe me, I had other stuff to do with my time. I'm, I'm a lawyer. I, you know, I'm a tenured college professor. I'm supposed to write in my area. Uh, this is not my area. My area is law. I'm, I'm a criminal law professor. But uh, I just, I first I wrote a short article about how she was saved. And then a Holocaust scholar who read it told me how to turn it into a book. And I did. And, you know, a publisher was, was uh, interested and recorded books, liked it enough to, to issue a, you know, an unbridged recording of it. And it, it's, um, it's quite a dramatic story if you want me to tell any of it. Yeah, please do. My mother is literally sitting in a death camp, 
at uh, and and the war is approaching its end. There's no question. It, it doesn't have all that many weeks to go, but they're still. It's, she's in a camp, which is, by the way, a very unique death camp. It is the only death camp on German territory, and it is, is the only. I'm sorry. No, it was uh, it, uh, Dachau. No, uh, no, this was actually Ravensbrück. Okay. Ravensbrück is uh, was originally a concentration camp, and then when Auschwitz sort of shuddered. Uh, because the Russians were coming close, and they stopped using the gas chambers there. They opened the gas chambers at Ravensbrück, which was where my mother had, you know, was, had been sent. And they were they were killing Jews. It what made Ravensbrück also unique. It was the only women's camp. It was occupied, with the exception of a few men who, at the very end of the war, were shipped there. Just a few, um, in terms of percentage, the camp had for the entirety of the war been only women. By the way, with a lot of SS women guards. So it was a very kind of unique place and a really, really awful place. I mean, not, not that any concentration camp couldn't be anything but awful, but there were women in my mother's group who, when I was able to find testimonials they'd written decades ago for the, for the library in Jerusalem dealing with the Holocaust, Yad Vashem, I found some testimonials that they had penned you know, uh, that they had written out. And uh, when asked decades ago about what it was like, literally they had been in Auschwitz and they had been in Ravensbrück. And one of them literally said it was worse in Ravensbrück. It was insane. It was madness. It was murder all the time. Uh, it was just a horrible place. And that the women guards in Ravensbrück were worse than the men guards, as if they were trying to show that they were, that they were tough and mean. Uh, it was just a, an amazing kind of a nightmarish place. Um, and, so my mother is there, and uh, Heinrich Himmler, if you, your listeners don't know it, was the second in charge of Nazi Germany, and amongst his duties was not only being interior minister and head of the Gestapo, but he was also head of the SS, and the SS are the people that ran the camps. And all these, the, you know, Himmler, amongst others, I suspect, had subordinates who he had sent to neutral countries sort of his aides, and one of them was in Stockholm. And while he's in Stockholm as a, as a representative of the, the SS, they, the, he gets this idea that the, the people to try to talk to, because it's obvious that the Germans are losing the war, would be, of course, the Jews. Jews, big capital letters, the Jews, as if they're one monolithic group. The theory here being they were trying to work out some kind of a arrangement for after the war for themselves, perhaps because Hitler wasn't willing to do anything. So Himmler had decided he might want to make some connections in the West. And this one connection that he, that he, that he, you know, that he sent to make the connections decided since the allies weren't willing to talk to him, he would find some Jewish businessman to talk to in effect, because we all know the Jews run the world. Uh, and, and you may think, this is just propaganda that the Nazis used, but a lot of them actually believed it. They believed the Jews were the power behind the thrones. And if you couldn't get Eisenhower or Churchill to talk to you, you find some Jew who might be able to communicate with them, of course, because they're the Jews. And literally, this, this aide-de-camp, this, this advisor to Himmler, is, has got a plane on the tarmac in Stockholm about to go to Berlin, uh, you know, back, back to Berlin to, to see Himmler. And two hours before the plane takes off, two hours, this one Jewish businessman 
is asked if he would like to go and meet Himmler. Now, I want you to understand something. To be asked, who is this businessman? I mean, is he a, is he a you know, secret, you know, OSS? Is he, you know, uh, is he a member of the, the Russian Secret Service? Uh, he's a furrier. He's a small businessman, fairly well-to-do in Stockholm. But to the Nazis, he's a guy worth talking to. And with two hours before this plane is due to take off, he's asked if he will go. And instead of saying, I'm sorry, do you think I'm insane? I'm a yeah, Jew. Yeah, that's what I would think. I, I, yeah, I'm, you're asking me to fly into Berlin. <laughs> Berlin, you know, that's the, the seat of the power that, I, I mean, being a Jew is a capital offense in your country. I mean, it, what are you kidding? I don't have any papers to go. I don't have any, you know, and, but instead... This Jewish businessman says, okay, I'll go. And they fly out of Stockholm and they land in, in you know, in the evening in uh, about six o'clock at the Berlin airport. And by the way, if you want just one little hint of what the book is like, how insane but remarkable his story is, he gets off the airplane. And by the way, I have this from an eyewitness. And he's immediately greeted by six SS officers, like in full dress regalia, who immediately swing their right arms into the air as if choreographed and and shout Heil Hitler. And in response, he looks at them, takes his hat off and simply responds by saying, good evening. So, you know, I just I just thought the guts that it takes to have done this is just remarkable. And, by the, and, and he's sitting in the Berlin airport uh, waiting for a car to take him to meet Himmler. And it turns out the car is very late. He's sitting there. And while he's sitting there, the, over the loudspeaker, Goebbels is giving a speech. It's, it's on radio. And Goebbels is, you know, Goebbels was the, the, the head propagandist for the Nazis. So he's giving this, you know, the anti-Semite who, who, whose anti-Semitism even in some respects surpassed verbally Hitler's. Uh, and he's given this long speech. And the only Jew in the Berlin airport is described by the, by the Himmler underling who brought him as sitting there very calmly preparing for the meeting, which he didn't know he was going to have until a couple of hours before. Um, so that's, that's uh, the, story, the book is about his attempts to get to the meeting, which was not easy the meeting when it takes place, the ability to, to try to get out, and the consequences of the meeting. Uh, and uh, that, that's, that's, uh, that's the centerpiece of the story. How does that break Adolf Hitler, and how does it save your mother? Well, I, I can, I'll tell you how it saved my mother. Um, he literally finally gets to meet Himmler. It, it takes a while, and um, it's, it's, it's quite a, quite a thing. Uh, and when they finally sit down across from each other, Himmler is interested in, you know, getting the good auspices of the Jews. You know, there's been some misunderstandings between us. Yeah, you killed six million of us. Um, and he's also interested in getting word of his willingness to make peace on the Western Front, which he has a certain amount of control over with the Allies. And he's, he's asking this, this Jewish businessman to help him with the communications. And once again, instead of saying, look, I'm a furrier, uh, I, you know, you want, you, you know, you're, if you're in Stockholm and you want to get your wife a nice pair of mink line gloves, cause it's cold during the winter, I'm the guy you talk to. You want a ceasefire on the Western front? Why'd you bring me? 
But instead of saying that, this guy who happens to be a very good chess player, and believe me, not at all stupid, basically responds, mm, okay, yeah, I can do that. Um, but you got to do a little something for me. And by the way, this is a complete and utter bluff. I mean, it's not just a bluff. It's the bluff of the century. It's, you know, you watch, you watch a James Bond movie with, you know, James Bond sitting, you know, across the table negotiating with the head of Spectre or something, you know, and this is, this is like that, but so much worse because uh, it's Spectre never did a patch of what Himmler was guilty of doing. Uh, this malevolent force that was Heinrich, Heinrich Himmler. Uh, this Jew is, is not expecting to be rescued by a battalion of, of British paratroopers. He's by himself. He's alone at the mercy uh, of these guys. Uh, and, and, and finally, the James Bond novels are fiction. This is actually happening. And uh, I document the truth of it by the fact that Himmler had some of his, not only did the Jewish furrier ended up writing a, a short thing about 10, 12 pages uh, and sending it off to the World Jewish Congress, which was a charitable organization, to let them know that he he met with Himmler and had made some arrangements with him. But also three of Himmler's aides survived the war and all three published memoirs in about a page or a page and a half in each of their memoirs about their time with Himmler. They discuss this Jew coming in from Sweden and negotiating the release of some Jews, and uh, and uh, and and one of the things that the Jewish furrier wants Himmler to do is immediately, like right now, I won't take your promise. I want, like right now, you give the order right now to release some Jewish women from this concentration camp that's like literally thirty kilometers from where they're sitting. The 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 Jewish furrier had passed it, had passed the camp on his way to Himmler's, given the circuitous route they had to take. He passes the camp. And he asked Himmler to release some of the women there. And Himmler agrees. And my mother's one of them. And how does that break Hitler? Well, you really want me to give the end of the book away? Well, uh, a little let something. Put, let, it's, let, it's... let me put it to you this way. This is a secret meeting. Himmler's kept it secret from everyone except his underlings. Nobody knows this Jew is visiting him. Why? Because he's afraid Hitler will learn. Because Hitler doesn't want Himmler cutting a deal on his own. This would be the ultimate betrayal. And... But secrets are hard to keep, and the secret of this meeting comes out. And when Hitler learns about it, and there are, there are eyewitnesses who are there and who've written their own memoirs in the bunk, about the time in the bunker with, him, with Hitler, when the word arrives, the eyewitnesses there describe Hitler's reaction to learning the news that Himmler has tried to cut a deal to talk to the West about a ceasefire on the Western Front. And the information he gets is all directly about the event, is all directly traced to this meeting. In other words, the meeting is the reason why um, uh, uh, the, the, the Swedish Foreign Office ends up being contacted about potentially, you know, delivering a message to the Allies. They deliver the message to the Allies. And then at some point along the way, they, somebody intentionally leaks the information to the press. Reuters gets it. And publishes the story, and Hitler learns about it, and it doesn't work well for Hitler at that point. It doesn't work well for Himmler either. It doesn't go well for them uh, once Hitler learns about this. One of the uh, one of the eyewitnesses in the bunker, who was the mistress of a of an I think an admiral, I can't remember if it was a general or an admiral, uh, is in the bunker because the general is visiting, and um, 
she says that when Hitler, he's, she's there when he gets the news, and she says he first turned turned, you know, ashen white and then bright red, and his first his first words were, "Even the faithful Himmler has betrayed me." Um, so that's uh, you know that's that's what the book is about. Let me ask you, uh, your mother, what happened yeah. after the war? How did she get to the states? What was her life like? Um, my mother um, gets shipped to Sweden, which is its own story because it takes a while to get there. And as I said, the the buses she is on get bombed by the British, who think they're German buses. Some of the women with her are killed, and she gets to Sweden and she spends some time in Sweden, and then gets to come to America. Um, as many of the women did, some stayed in Sweden, some went to other places, some went to Israel. Some of the women she is with who were released with her do come to America, and she comes to Los Angeles. Uh, there comes a point in time soon after her arrival in which, you know, she has no family left. She had, uh, the brothers and sisters are gone. She had one relative in Los Angeles. She arrives because she has this relative in Los Angeles. She's literally the only, the only relative closer than a second cousin she's got left. And he's not interested, you know, so she ends up working in a, in a, you know, sweatshop sewing downtown in downtown Los Angeles, because that's in many ways what saved her life in the war. She was a very good seamstress. So the Germans put her to work, you know, sewing men's uniforms. She'd do the collars of the uniforms and the cuffs, because that turns out to be a skilled job that, that not many of the women they had sewing there could do. And she could do it quite well. And, um, you know, working at a hat store, uh, you know, in the na- same neighborhood is my father, who had been an immigrant from uh, what is today Moldova and uh, through Canada and then down to Los Angeles, and they get introduced. He knows this fellow who, uh, a fellow who happens also to be working with refugees, and uh, he says, you know, I'd like to introduce you to this uh, this woman, uh, you know, and so they, they get set up on, in effect, an effect, a blind date. And uh, eight months later, they're married. And then I come along uh, a couple of years later, and that's uh, my... May, may I ask how, how old was, I? No, how old was your mother when she passed? My mother, that's a, tough, that's a tough question. The records are almost non-existent, and my mother claimed that she, and I believed her completely, she had no idea how old she was. Certain things were wiped out of her mind thanks to the war. She was, I, there's, there's a credible um, source that would claim that my mother would have been about 88 or 89 when she passed away. Uh, yeah. Some people, you know, occasionally right now, and it seems to be picking up more steam, they're Holocaust deniers. Do you, yeah. do you find that totally incredible? I mean, to me, it's, it's mind-blowing, but that's... Well, that's one of the reasons, you know, about five years ago, it took me eight years to write this book because it, it may sound like, and it's not a long book. And by the way, you know, I used to, I used to be, a, I, I may teach law now, but I, I, in, in an earlier stage of my life, I was a reporter for the New York Daily News. And I wrote for them for two and a half years, and I published, I think they published something like 90, 88, 90 stories that I, I, I wrote. And uh, I r- tried to write this book like I, I wrote those columns. In other words, easy to read and follow and fairly simple. Um, but I, I gave it to a friend of mine who was a successful screenwriter in Hollywood uh, maybe five years ago, four years ago, after I put together all the research and sort of had some organized research that was kind of a book at that point but needed a lot more work. And I gave it to this friend of mine who wanted to read it and see, you know, see if he could help me. And he said, oh, no, 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 you can't do this. You, can't, you, you have to write this as a novel. You have to play with the time and combine characters and do all this, you know, turn it into a novel. Then it will be a great book. And I said, no, 
No, I, I, there are deniers out there. If I'm going to write this book, every single word is going to be documented. Every single word is going to be true. Conversations are going to be based on eyewitness accounts. And I literally sat down with the, with the book that I had and spent the next four years rewriting it so that it would read as if it were a novel, but would be completely backable by all history and documentation because I didn't want, you know, once I'm gone, uh, people to be able to deny that it ever happened. I wanted documentation there. They may deny it anyway, but but there'll be there'll be responses. It's it's not enough. Although I got a couple of emails in the last uh, month or so from uh, people who've read it, thanking me so much for my wonderful novel. But it's not a novel. It's it's an actual it's an actual account. It just it, it didn't need to be dramatized. The the events were so ridiculously inherently dramatic. It was. Uh, it was kind of it would have been gilding the lily to try to change it. Were the female guards at Ravensbrück were they ever punished? Yes, um, it, you know it took a lot um, punished. Eh, uh, it took a lot to get just guards in concentration camps punished after the war. They were usually looking for higher ups, but the women guards in Ravensbrück were so awful that twenty one of them stood trial for their war crimes for their crimes against humanity, basically in terms of what they'd done as guards. So that's extraordinary, and. Um, the descriptions by the, the women who were interviewed later who were prisoners describing these guards is just, you know, they, 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 more so than the men. They just seem to be sadistic when dealing with the women. The name of the book, Left to the Mercy of a Rude Stream, The Bargain That Broke Adolf Hitler and Saved My Mother. Stanley Goldman, thank you for writing this book. Oh, no. Thank you for having me on. It's been a pleasure. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500 or connorsandsullivan.com. I think I just found myself believing that I didn't need God. I just had everything under control, and church was actually a, a burden to me. I might have gone to church, you know, at Christmas time, gradually quit going. No, I didn't take my faith seriously, which, which probably means I, I never really got it to begin with. You can have a beautiful car, a big fancy home, but if you don't have Christ in your life, there's an emptiness that's there. We are enslaved to power or to greed or to wealth or to lust, especially as a man. But there's a true freedom to not be enslaved, but to attach ourselves to God and to be free. Thank God I'm home. Now that I'm back in the Catholic Church, I'm a new person. I love it. There's peace in our home that we didn't have before. You're coming home to a Catholic family where people today just embrace you. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for whatever reason, we invite you to take another look. Visit CatholicsComeHome.org today. Hello, this is Father Frank Pavone of Priests for Life. Do you want to hear your parish priest talk more about abortion and the pro-life movement? 
The key mission of Priests for Life is to help priests do exactly that. The first place to start is to listen to your priest and learn how he thinks. What is he most interested in and passionate about? Then, when you find out, link that issue with the abortion issue. For example, a priest who told me that he did not preach much about abortion also told me he was interested in efforts to stop drug abuse. When I told him that those who have abortions are more likely to abuse drugs, it gave him a new motive to preach about abortion. Find out more about how you can help your priest at priestsforlife.org. This is Father Frank Pavone, National Director of Priests for Life. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. With me right now is award-winning actor Tony Lobianco. He's done a lot of work for the veterans over the years, and he has a story to relate to us. Well, hi, everybody. It's, a, it's just a pleasure to be with you. Uh, and such a, such a fantastic patriot you guys are. You just uh, support everything good. I had the uh, honor, with, along with my wife, Elise, uh, last year, late last year, to... Uh, to go to France. A friend of ours uh, uh, said, you're going to France, you're going to Normandy. I said, yes. He said, well, I have a friend who did a, did a, uh, uh, a documentary and it's called The Mother of Normandy. And I, he said, what it's about is this woman who is the, was the wife of the mayor at the time in 1944 uh, in, in France. Uh, she, when our invasion took place and, and we lost so many, so many of our brave American soldiers, she, the mother took care of all the graves and communicated with the the loved ones back home here in the United States for years. She did it for 40 years until she was 80 years old and then passed. However, she had three sons, and the middle son was going to uh, meet us when we arrived in Normandy, and he did. He took us to their home, told us magnificent stories about his father, who was the mayor, and his mother, uh, and how the Nazis were there, and uh, how how the father... uh, stayed alive by, uh, you know, uh, having to do with the Nazis ass of him, but gave him less. They would ask for, let's say, 20 bicycles. He said, oh, I can only, I only have seven or things like that. He was always cutting short of what the, not, the, the Germans needed. And, and he survived. And so did, the, so did the son who was telling us this. And he was about 12, 10, 10 or 12 years old at the time. And he showed us all the scrapbooks and he took us to the grave sites and he took us to the museum that's there in Normandy now. And it's amazing to be, to be uh, in the museum and, and looking at pictures and him saying, oh, there's my father. Oh, there's my mother. And uh, at that time, in that particular time. And uh, also in that town, they have the parachute that, uh, that was in the movie The Longest Day. Uh, still hanging from the church tower as a symbol. It's, it's a wonderful place to visit and to see so many uh, uh, unbelievable 
memories of these great, great heroes and all the bombs that we dropped. The holes are still there, you know, trying to uh, uh, protect our, our soldiers climbing those mountains up to the Germans and with the Germans shooting down at them. Uh, it was a massacre and we prevailed anyway. And uh, it was a, it's a great touching, touching um, for all of us who, who went and, and touched the earth that was there and blessed. We were blessed uh, by, by being there. And, and just, and we were the, the last few people to go in, into France to, to visit the Notre Dame before its terrible tragedy uh, this year. And thank you very, very much. Listen, thank you for relaying that story. And not enough people really remember the sacrifices of our veterans, whether it was you know, World War One veterans who are all gone now, World War Two veterans who are rapidly going, and, and the guys yes. from Korea, Vietnam, the modern wars. Let's remember all of them because they all did their part Let's pray for all of them, and God bless America. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And we're losing, we're losing 20 to 22 veterans a day to suicide. And they must be cared for. They must be cared for. Let, and let them know who's ever, con- you know somebody who's contemplating such a thing, to please get in touch with help. There is help all over the place for them, because we love them. And they have to know that we love them everything they've done for us. Well said. Thank you. All right, Beth, you know, it's the little past the 75th anniversary of D-Day, and we were talking about different experiences or whatever, and you said maybe I should bring up uh, some of my father's history. I do. Yeah, my father, you know, he grew up in Brooklyn, uh, born in Puerto Rico, grew up in Brooklyn, and he was in World War II, and he's a little bit older than a lot of the guys who served in World War II. You know, he wasn't at D-Day, he wasn't at the Battle of the Bulge, he got sent to Europe in February 1945, and he was involved in the, in the Rhine crossings. You know, that was some bloody fighting, and my understanding is, and I, I was told this by two different sources, that if the 200 guys that crossed the Rhine with them, only 11 came out in one piece by the end of the war. And, of course, by the end of the war, they were in Bavaria, and they were one of the first troops at, at Dachau. They got one of those things called Liberation Medals or whatever because they were one of the f- first troops that, that freed the... Uh, concentration camp victims at, at Dachau. And, you know, sometimes I wonder when we talk, like Tony does a lot of work for post-traumatic stress syndromes, and, and sometimes the conversation comes up, why do so many veterans today have a problem adjusting? And yes, veterans from World War II, a lot of them did have a problem, uh, you know, adjusting. We, we, you know, we talked about Audie Murphy, right. who uh, most decorated hero in World War II, who could not sleep unless his hand was on a revolver or a, a pistol or something, right. you know had a problems, but percentage wise they didn't seem to have as many problems. You certainly didn't have the number of suicides that you have today. I mean, I don't know if I believe the statistics, but you know, a veteran commits suicide every hour, a veteran of the Afghan Iraq war or whatever. It's hard to believe. And sometimes you can't figure out what's different. I know some people have given some theories, you know, like back in World War II, you had a lot better supports. Family support. You came back to a home. Today, the family structure is not the same. Your mom and dad may be divorced. There's not one home to come to. Maybe your spouse has left you, which, I mean, it happened in World War II. That's one of the stories, the Dear John letters or whatever, but it didn't happen as much as it does today. It's a hard world out there, and we have to pray for our veterans. Let them get through this, and hopefully, you know, they find help. They find salvation. They don't think about suicide. But, you know, let's thank Tony Lobianco because he gives a lot of his time toward helping veterans. You know, he does his plays to raise money for veterans. He gives his time very generously for 
veterans affairs and things like that. So we appreciate it. He's a patriot and he does what he does. Meanwhile, you know, next week we're going to be talking to uh, Professor McGrath about reparations, which is a hot political topic right now. So I'm we have a lot to, to say about that. We have don't an awful we? lot to say about <laughs> that. And, you know, and again, if you, if you want to hear more about estate planning, their elder law, we're going to have seminars on Tuesday, June 25th in Midtown Manhattan at the Three West Club at 11 and 3 p.m. We're going to be in Bocelli's restaurant in Staten Island on Thursday, June 27th, 11, 3, and 7, 1250 Highland Boulevard in Staten Island. So if you want to hear you know, more about estate planning, you want to get an idea of how to transfer the assets from, you know, ordinarily from the parents and children, give us a call at 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500. Learn how to protect your assets and pass them on to the next generation. Meanwhile, thank you very much for listening to Ask the Lawyer. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye, everybody. We are gathered here on hallowed ground, the voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. We are gathered here on hallowed ground, the voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. Ask the Lawyer friends and listeners, you can attend any of Connors & Sullivan's free seminars on elder law, Medicaid, wills, and estate planning, and more. Yes, it's all free and all close to you. So come to Connors & Sullivan's free seminars. On Tuesday, June 25th at the 3 West Club, 3 West 51st Street in Midtown Manhattan at 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. And on Thursday, June 27th at Bocelli's Ristorante, 1250 Highland Boulevard in Grasmere. Staten Island at 11 a.m., 3 p.m., and 7 p.m. Can't go to any Connors & Sullivan's free seminars? Then call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500 for your own free office appointment. Make an educated decision on your estate and family legal solutions today. Just call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500 or go to connorsandsullivan.com. Connors & Sullivan. Plan now for later. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Connors and Sullivan Attorneys at Law PLLC. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.